0: All right, James 3, if you will, as we continue our study together. And we're in a a particularly uh, magnificent section as far as I'm concerned right now. And so I want to, in reading you the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at together, we're going to spend two times, two times that we're together in this passage. But backing up to verse 8, you remember how James writes, "...but the tongue can no man tame, it is an unruly evil." Full of deadly poison, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude of God or in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be, that the fountain send forth at the same time sweet water and bitter. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain yield both salt, water, and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good life his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonical, For where envying and strife are, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by them that make peace. How wonderful, Lord, how we pray that thou wilt make these few moments that we're privileged to be together extremely meaningful. May our hearts be ex- extremely sensitive and receptive and responsive to the Spirit of God, to the Word of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Actually, James continues with a theme that we can follow all through his magnificent epistle, and that is very simply that if we profess to be Christians, we must live Christ like lives. In other words, he says that uh, the only kind of valid faith is a living, active faith. Otherwise, it doesn't even exist. And so he is actually, I think, making chapter 2, verse 20, the key verse of his epistle when, of course, he says faith without works is, is dead. And he has made it very clear in this particular chapter, chapter 3, that we've been studying that our speech is many times a rather amazing revelation and index to the reality of the faith we profess, our spirituality, our character. And as we saw in verses 7 and 8, he talks about the untamableness of the tongue and how charged with deadly poison it is. And what a restless, unrestrained, ungovernable, uncontrolled thing an evil tongue becomes. Now he moves immediately as he considers once again the tongue, its terrible, dreadful inconsistency. This is what we find in verses 9 through 12. He says in verse 9, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. In other words, this very inconsistency with respect to our speech, what we say, he says, is the very essence of hypocrisy. And the fact that sometimes we use our tongues for a beneficent and a worthy purpose, such as giving glory to God, does not for a moment, as far as James is concerned, exonerate it from general condemnation. And so he draws attention to its inheritance, Inherent and inevitable inconsistency. We all know that the very highest, the loftiest use of human speech is to praise God for His sovereignty and His love. And by the way, this would be particularly relevant to a Jew because whenever the name of God was mentioned, no matter where or when or what the context, a devout Jew immediately responded, Blessed be he, blessed be he. Three times a day the devout Jew had to repeat the Shemina Esra, the famous 18 prayers called eulogies, every one of which begins with, blessed be thou, O God. And so God was indeed eulogetos, which literally means the blessed one or the one who is continually to be blessed. And so to bless God simply meant to praise Him with thankfulness and love, uh, to pronounce His ineffable blessing in all that He is, in His perfections. And this was considered to be by the devout Jew and, of course, by all of us who know the Word of God and love Jesus Christ to be the loftiest use of human speech. We think immediately of the 103rd Psalm where the psalmist says... Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Bless the Lord who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all our diseases, who redeemeth our life from destruction, who crowneth us with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies our mouths with good things. Then when the psalmist says, O Lord, I will praise thee. Behold, the God is my salvation and I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord is my strength and my song and I will praise him. For this exalted use above all others speech was given to us. That's the purpose of our having tongues of being able to express ourselves. As the old catechism expressed it the chief end of man is to give glory to God. And so this endearing relationship in which the believer delights to think of God and to address him as Father, indeed to whom we've been made accepted in the Beloved, is of course exclusive to those who have been truly reconciled by the shed blood of the Blessed Redeemer and who because of that can very truly and lovingly and gratefully bless him. And yet James says, enigmatically, paradoxically, that very same mouth, that very same tongue, that very same organ of speech that so frequently, so joyously blesses God is the very same mouth which can curse and imprecate and be a source of evil with respect to our fellow men. A man's tongue is capable of praising God and setting forth his glory, but it's also capable of abusive raillery against our fellow man who, James reminds us, is made in God's image. Now, doubtless James has in mind a general application, but we also are very well aware of the fact that he has in mind the attitude of Jews toward Christians. There was a very difficult hostility there and of even bigoted Jewish Christians, as we've just suggested, toward Gentiles. They could be very loud in their praises and blessing of God, but were equally ready to pour burning, scathing, blistering maledictions upon those who, for example, didn't worship quite the same way they did. And so James detests this ability of the tongue to play the part of Dr. Jenkel and Mr. Hyde. And he says that it's true that man still is in the image of God and we must never forget that. Man has fallen, but he is still God's appointed representative over creation. He is still, as the psalmist says in the eighth psalm, the sheer glory of the entire universe. True, his image is damaged. It's marred by sin, but it's still there. And the overwhelming and matchless truth is that man is still redeemable and beyond all God's creatures he possesses the attributes of reason, will, and conscience. He's a personal, rational, moral being with the ability to know and serve God and the capacity to conform to God's moral and spiritual likeness. Man is something very, very wonderful. It's interesting that God never loses faith in man. That's exciting. In contrast, man has lost faith in man. The prevailing pessimistic philosophy not only denies the God of the Word of God, but sees no image of God in man because man is nothing but the result of an accident. He is merely the evolutionary product of the impersonal plus time plus chance. He really has no significance individually, some significance collectively, but certainly has no future. We've talked about this. James deplores the idea that men curse men who are made in the image of God because it is not only degrading to man, it's degrading to God. It's an insult. To the God in whose likeness man was made. And this frightening act, by the way, of placing a curse upon people is very common among the Muslims. It's very prevalent among many other pagan religions. And of course, it's a part of those who delve into the murky world of the occult. The cursing of enemies with a death wish is very, very common. We're told, interestingly, that Idi Amin was present during the wanton murder of hundreds of people, even thousands, who in any way disagreed with his bloody regime. But when their throats were cut, he would always engage in a ritual in which he would dip his finger in their blood because he was terrified that they had cursed him. Well, perhaps James was addressing professing Christians who had come under the influence of this form of pagan depravity and had fallen into this awful practice of pronouncing curse upon their enemies. We always remember how Peter in the high priest's palace began to curse. That's pronouncing anathema on someone, the condemnation of God, and to swear. And that very same lovable John who said, little children love one another, we remember was the same John who wished to call down fire from heaven and blast the Samaritan village out of existence. Even the tongues of the saints and the apostles could often say very different and very contradictory things. And so James says, out of the same mouth comes praise and Cursing, and then he says, and you can feel the surge of the pathos and the agony of his heart as he says, "My brethren, this should not be." It's interesting to think about how God will one day judge us before the judgment seat of Christ. Will it be for what we've said in church when we've been asked to lead in prayer, or? Will it be what we've said when we have preached? Or will it be much more likely what we have said to each other when we're not in church or anywhere near the church? The point that James is making is that the good we say concerning our gratitude to God and to our matchless, wonderful Christ cannot be sincere and honest and acceptable unless what we say to our fellow men is equally blessed and good that's tremendous in other words he says with the same tongue we cannot possibly bless god and curse our fellow men And I am confident that God is much more concerned, much more interested in what we have to say to each other than in what we have to say to Him. Layman Strauss said something that to me was very searching. He said, as I meditated upon these verses, they left me with a sick feeling and I saw the awful reality of my inconsistency when failing to control my tongue now two uses of the tongue are set in contrast to each other. On the one hand, we exercise the tongue in the noblest and loftiest use, namely to praise God. And then on the other hand, we exercise the same member in its most degrading and injurious use, namely to speak evil of men. How utterly sinful it is to bless our God, the Heavenly Father, with the very tongue we use to call His anathema down upon any man whom is created in his own image. Well, what this is saying very simply and tersely is that what God wants from all of us in our our Christian life is, is consistency. And so James gives us, he does so beautifully so many times, a vivid illustration from nature. And so he says in verses 11 and 12, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can fig trees bear olives or grapevines bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And by the way, this would be a very realistic illustration because in Palestine and especially in the region of the Dead Sea, if you've ever been there, there are many, many fountains. But unfortunately, what comes out of those fountains and those springs is brackish, salty, sulfur water, unfit for animal, let alone human consumption. so james issues a warning a fountain cannot give forth two kinds of water and a tree can't bear two kinds of fruit do you see how this is the theme of his whole epistle we're to be what we are not profess to be something we are not we expect the fountain to flow with sweet water at all times and we expect a fig tree to bear figs and an olive tree to bear olives and nature reproduces after its kind unless it's interfered with in some way. And this is the powerful argument for regeneration. If the tongue is consistent, that says something. But if the tongue is inconsistent, there is something tragically and radically wrong with the heart. And that's where the real problem is. That's the spring that's producing the brackish, salty, sulfurous water. Solomon said in Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And our Lord said this. He said in Mark 7, verses 21 to 23, listen to Philip's paraphrase, For it is from inside... From men's hearts and minds that evil thoughts arise, lust, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. Of course, the antithesis to this, the contrast to this, is what our Lord says the Holy Spirit does in our hearts when he indwells us and controls us. His glorious promise of John 7, verses 37 to 39. And that brings us immediately to a glorious note of victory. The tongue can be tamed and curbed and subdued and controlled and become consistent. It begins, of course, with the great miracle of the new birth, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And then as our hearts are increasingly filled with the word of God, so that we're saturated with it, Colossians 3.16 We allow the Word of God to dwell in us richly. As the Holy Spirit increasingly assumes His sovereignty, He will use us not only to bring light to others, but we will be a refreshing fountain of cool, clear, fresh, sweet, living water. That's what our Lord promised. He said that when we are controlled by the Spirit of God at the very centrality of our heart, He said, we will become a spring of living water, a well springing up into everlasting life. His promise was, he that believeth in me, as the scripture hath said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The outflow in speech, as in conduct, will be pleasant and spiritually beneficent and healthy. With our roots down deep in the word of God, we will be trees like the blessed man in the first psalm by the river of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season, the blessed fruit of the Spirit. And so the extent to which the Holy Spirit controls our speech becomes the index, get this now, listen carefully, of our yieldedness to God. The sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in our lives means total defeat to Satan because in 1 John 4, 4, we read, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you ever stop to think about this? How intriguing and how beautiful those words are when the enemies of our Lord were describing him, and they said, Never a man, what? Spake like this man. Now, James has told us that the inconsistency of the tongue means there's something tragically wrong with the heart. And that's, he says, where the real problem is. And so he moves very logically from the tongue to the heart and he talks about false wisdom, a counterfeit wisdom, in contrast to true wisdom and heavenly wisdom and divine wisdom. And once again, his He's concerned, as we see at the beginning of this third chapter, with those who desire to be teachers but, but who are not really qualified for their work because of their inadequate experience and their lack of knowledge and very evidently their lack of wisdom. And he warns that those who assume the responsibility of teaching you remember are accountable and for that reason actually receive a greater condemnation James was evidently speaking about those who put themselves forward as authorities, as teachers, but who revealed themselves to be sadly deficient in divine wisdom. They were not wise in their estimate, perhaps, of their own ability, their own knowledge, and they were often responsible for scenes of ugly wrangling and bitter disputes and arguments instead of the means of edifying and uniting and Bringing blessing to the church, the body. And so he says in verse 13, and this was by the Socratic method of teaching, he says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? It's a question. And the obvious answer is the man that never forgets his moral responsibilities because knowledge entails moral responsibility. The word wise man was, as we know, often applied to the teacher, the rabbi, the master. The word knowledge or understanding, which interestingly is found only here in the New Testament, indicates one who is an expert in some particular subject. In classical Greek, this word epistemon described the skilled scientific person, Actually, as opposed to the one who had no special training or special knowledge. And that brings us to this. There is a difference between knowledge and true wisdom, though, of course, they complement each other. Wisdom was very, very important to the people of Israel. They realized it wasn't enough to have knowledge, to have mere information. They knew that wisdom was the ability to use that information and that knowledge correctly. The ability to take the facts and relate them to your life and to put them into meaningful, fulfilling action. In other words, uh, immediately wisdom signifies the recognition of moral responsibility. All of us have known people who were extremely intelligent and had the privilege of drinking deep at the fount of knowledge. By the way, somebody said that some people drink and other people simply gargle. I like that. But in spite of their knowledge, these people were emotionally and spiritually infantile and they could not manage their own lives. We've seen people like that. Now, wisdom is superior to knowledge because it implies maturity, good, sound, moral judgment, it is the skillful use, the moral use of knowledge. It is that keen insight that enables a person to make good judgments and good decisions. It's enigmatical but is nevertheless incontrovertible that a person can have an excellent education and be utterly deficient in wisdom. And such a person finds it difficult to use the facts that he has learned as he ought to use them. My son-in-law was describing a physician friend of his, and he said, you know, he was the best man as far as the tests were concerned in all of our class. He graduated a surgeon. He said, I wouldn't let him operate on my duck. He knew it all, but he couldn't translate it into his hands. On the other hand, a person may lack formal education, but because of that person's spiritual maturity, that person's relationship to God, he may be endowed with amazing wisdom, a high level of moral sensitivity and able to make excellent decisions and moral judgments. We can't, of course, think about wisdom without thinking immediately of Solomon. When God, you remember, appeared to Solomon in the night, he said, ask what I shall give thee. And, and, and believe me, Solomon was confronted with a staggering decision. God said, ask what you will, and you will receive it. Riches, wealth, honor, long life, anything, ask me. The possibilities were staggering. And Solomon's choice was a very unlikely one. He asked for something, however, that demonstrated he already, in a measure, possessed some of it. Because he had the good sense to ask for wisdom and knowledge so that he would be able to rule over the great nation Israel. That's all he wanted, wisdom and knowledge. And God gave him what he asked for and much more, riches, wealth, honor, and long life, which was certainly achieved, by the way, largely because he had wisdom and knowledge. But of all the blessings that came from God to Solomon, the one that he had asked for him, the one that he prized the most, and the one that meant the most to him was wisdom because he said so. In Proverbs 8:11, he said, Wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Again, he said, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And what an enigma it is that men can have knowledge, information, and be devoid of wisdom. And by the way, everywhere in the world we see this demonstrated. In January of 1970, Max Born died. He was a very, very close friend of Albert Einstein and a colleague of Max Planck and Otto Hahn, the nuclear physicists. He was one of the great minds of the 20th century. And in an interview on German television before his death, he made this comment, I'd be happier if we scientists had less brains and more wisdom." I read a life story of Robert Oppenheimer. By the way, it's one of the saddest stories ever in your life. He was one of the key physicists in the achieving of the ability to make the thermonuclear bomb. And you know that after what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he saw it with his own eyes, it literally destroyed his life. He never was able to overcome his depression. It became increasingly profound, and as you know, a few years ago he died, but not before expressing over and over again that that tremendous knowledge and ability to make the bomb was the most tragic use of that knowledge that he could conceive, and all he had was regret. Daniel prophesied that in this age knowledge would be increased, but he doesn't say that wisdom would be increased. It's been estimated that one half of man's total knowledge was gained in approximately the first 10,000 years of recorded history, and the other half has been gained in the last 50 years. Somewhere I read of all of man's knowledge up to 1845 could be considered one inch On the same scale, the accumulation of knowledge, information from 1845 to 1945 could be considered three inches, but the knowledge explosion from 1945 to 1975 would reach the height of the Washington Monument, 550 feet, and probably in the last six years has added another 100 feet. We're literally in the midst of a knowledge explosion. We're told that 90% of the scientists are alive today, and the number of scientific periodicals now being published in the world is estimated at 100,000, and there is no one man who can keep up with all the information concerning any one single discipline. He can't live long enough. Not even the Library of Congress can ever hope to provide space for the endless flood of technical literature pouring off the presses. It's been estimated that 2,000 words a minute are being added to the volume of written technical knowledge. Of course, it's been said that man only uses two-tenths of one percent of his brain, and yet, with all we do know, we really don't know very much. Because I thought I'd made a mistake, I checked this twice. Thomas Edison said, we do not know one millionth of one percent about anything. That's a little let down, isn't it? And what is intriguing is that knowledge in itself never adds to the moral advantage of people in any age. There is not necessarily any corollary between knowledge and morality. We're seeing certain things, certainly that were never seen by any past civilizations, in our quest for peace and ease and thrills and our exhaustion of the resources of nature because of our prolific use of its resources, the tremendous population explosion. Suddenly nature is turning hard against us, precipitating us into a food crisis because of increasing famine, a pollution crisis because we have corrupted and contaminated the the earth, the sea, and the sky, an energy crisis because we have used irreplaceable resources with reckless abandon, and our knowledge but for the intervention of God is about to destroy us. These are only a few of the crises, all interrelated, all terminal, all a direct result, listen carefully, of man's lack of true wisdom. Wisdom the wisdom from above, and his misuse of his acquired knowledge. True wisdom is absolutely and uniquely the gift of God, and no man can have that wisdom who does not have a relationship with the one who is the incarnation, the inhumanation, the personification of wisdom, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the essence of true wisdom is bound up in faith in him. Our Lord said that when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. The apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, true wisdom makes the will of God its rule and the glory of God its end, and that's true wisdom. So the man who lives his life without the word of God, as do the pessimistic philosophers and the secular humanists of our day, are actually, as far as God is concerned, living in the mire of stupidity. Satan always comes as an angel of light, but he is, from heaven's point of view, the supreme buffoon of the universe. If a man be wise unto salvation, once again, James gets pragmatic. He said his wisdom will be seen, first of all, verse 13, by his good life. Let him show out of good conversation, the King James says. By the way, that word means manner of life, conduct, lifestyle. doesn't mean just interchange of speech. We can better understand the meaning when we read in 2 Peter 2.7 that righteous Lot was vexed with the filthy manner of life of the wicked. In other words, their godless lifestyle offended him. And so we see the characteristic, interestingly, of the wise Christian is that he lives his life in the constant consciousness of the presence of God and under the sovereign control of the Spirit of God. So James says, Who is wise and understanding among you, let him show it by his good life. Even Seneca, the heathen philosopher, said, Wisdom does not show itself so much in precept as in life. In a firmness of mind, in a mastery of appetite, it teaches us to do as well as to talk and to make our words and actions all of the same color. Seneca said that good life, the godly life, the Christ-like life, issues, of course, in a controlled tongue and is the proof that such wisdom is something more than the product of merely egoism. Undoubtedly, James has in mind the angry, turbulent, arrogant, egotistical, superior spirit often exhibited by professing Christians who fancied themselves wise but by such characteristics gave evidence of a total and utter lack of divine wisdom. Then James shows us there's another characteristic of the possessor of true wisdom, and that's humility, modesty. Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility. You see, this is the very opposite to the arrogant, self-assertive, ruthless desire to dominate. I do not know at any point the uh, opposition of the spirit of the world or the spirit of God is more marked and more obvious and more diametrical than with regard to this particular characteristic of true wisdom. Pride of knowledge is ever and always the sin of the professional teacher. I had a young man on my staff who had his doctor's degree in education and he, he was a very brilliant young man and he was, he was good at his work but, but he, he just generated hostility everywhere he went and I had him come in to see me one day and, and I, I addressed him and I said now I want to ask you something do you really feel superior to everybody in the world and he said very honestly Dr. MacArthur that's exactly the way I feel about myself mm-hmm. because I am um, we had problems with him real problems. But I'm happy to tell you that I think that the Lord got to him, and I think that he kind of found at last that humility that is the essence of true greatness. Yes, the temptation of the teacher is to be theoretical and arrogant, and it can be said that the truly wise are ever and always humble, modest. James says, where there is no humility, there is no true wisdom. And the reason why a truly wise person will be humble, listen, is because a wise person recognizes, first, that he has a relationship with God, and secondly, that he is utterly dependent upon God, and he also has a high level of moral responsibility and he realizes that knowledge carries moral responsibility and must issue in what is good and what is right. In other words, he can make good, valid moral judgments. He acknowledges God's greatness and His holiness and His majesty, and he is aware of his utter dependence upon God and how that there is no way that he, with only limited resources within himself, can meet, for example, God's standards of righteousness and holiness and faithfulness. When we compare our little pygmy, puny, pusillanimous, sand-grain minds with the mind in which post the thoughts of the infinite, we realize how little we are and how little we know. The truly wise man understands the words of Solomon, he says, the fear, the reverential attitude and trust of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Any contentiousness or arrogance or any tendency to self-assertion or egotism, any desire to glory and superiority over others is an infallible sign that the essential qualification for the effective teacher is missing because there is no spirit of gentleness and modesty and humility which is the true sign of divine wisdom. Someone said that egotism is the anesthetic that dulls the pain of stupidity. Isn't that good? That's great. I'll read that again. Egotism is the anesthetic that dulls the pain of stupidity. In the very first chapter, verse 21, the hearer of the word was exhorted to receive it with humility. Now the teacher of the word of God is exhorted to manifest this same gracious quality of mind. Our wonderful Lord, the greatest of all teachers, called men to him as disciples, and they became aware of the hallmark of the genuine teacher because he, our blessed Lord, was gentle and humble in heart. And the word of God tells us that this wonderful one the one in whom the ideal of man is embodied, the one who is God incarnate. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him that judges rightly. For those who plied the crucificial hammers when they nailed him to that awful rack, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What wisdom. How his gracious spirit contrasted with the rebellious, defiant, wicked, arrogant, egotistical spirit of the world. The apostle wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.30, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Wisdom and humility. Inseparable attributes when our Lord speaks in the fifth chapter of Matthew about the poor in spirit he's not talking about the poor spirited he's talking about the humble minded and he said that theirs is the kingdom the humility of wisdom is consistent with the greatest courage and the most passionate zeal so much more I could say to you but the time is gone Let me conclude by saying what an example our Lord Jesus Christ is of that ability to exhibit constantly under all circumstances, even when demon-driven men were lacerating and mutilating his body with sadistic madness, always that same gentle, gracious spirit. I think Barclay said something very good here. He said, it's very difficult to be a teacher or preacher and remain humble. But however difficult it is, it's absolutely necessary. Wisdom is manifested in our utter dependence upon Jesus Christ. Kenneth Robertson, outstanding author, was invited by the well-known surgeon Dr. Alexis Carrell, who was a cardiac specialist, a very renowned surgeon, to watch him perform a very difficult operation. And he was with him during the time of his preparation for his surgery, and he noticed that just before he went into the operating room, he paused and he bowed his head, and for a considerable time he prayed. Then he went to his task. Robert said, as I watched his hands, I was aware of the fact that his hands seemed literally nerveless, and afterwards, Roberts said to him, "I noticed that you prayed before you went into surgery. I, I, I wonder was it was because you, you were a little bit uh, disturbed about your lack of ability." And Dr. Carell said, "No, I know that I'm dependent upon a power much higher than mine." someone much stronger than I am and I feel so close to God when I'm operating that I don't know the place where my skill leaves off and His begins and so I feel that all of the time every moment I am dependent upon Him you see the spirit of true humility that comes with our recognition of our dependence upon God and our consciousness of His presence by His Spirit. When this is true, when this is true, we will inevitably manifest that gracious gentleness, that love and humility so magnificently seen in this one who embodied the wisdom of God, whose name is wisdom, our wonderful, matchless Christ. We shall discover that the more we look to Him for guidance, the more we manifest the Spirit of humility, and dependency, the more we will be able to use the knowledge we have acquired, the skill that we do have, whatever it may be, with greater effectiveness, most important of all, for His glory. Our wonderful Lord, bless the message from Thy Word to our hearts this morning.